Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series. Nineteen ninety-three, Walter Isaacson, then a journalist for Time Magazine, is interviewing Woody Allen about his infamous affair with Soon Yi Previn. For those of you that don't know your story, the story, or it's before your time, Allen was in a relationship for years with Mia Farrow, a well-known model and actress. Farrow adopted Soon Yi as a little girl from South Korea. Then she adopted a few more children, kind of the original Angelina Jolie. Then, eventually, she and Woody had a son together. Years go by, 15-plus years, and it comes out they are sleeping together. Woody is 56, Soon Yi is 21. This is long before Me Too, and Alan goes on to then date her in public for a number of years, and eventually they marry in 97. And reading Isaacson's interview, um, who's become this premier biographer and head of the Aspen Ideas Institute. At the time, he's just a journalist, and he's so good at his job, and he's just persistent. He just will not stop. He's very kind, but very to the point, and it's a fascinating case study in the human condition. Google to your heart's content. We'll take you 10 minutes to read, but Alan just time after time after time will not admit that he did anything wrong. And at the very end of the interview, Alan has this iconic, like, only Woody Allen could say that line, the heart, as the justification for his affair, he says, the heart wants what it wants. Now that line, the heart wants what it wants, has entered the vernacular of our generation. I hear that on a semi-regular basis, usually to describe why we do what it is we do. Very few people know or at least remember where it actually comes from. Even my most libertine friends would not approve of a sexual relationship where a dad becomes a brother-in-law and a sister becomes a stepmom. And yet that's the origin story of that well-known slogan. But the fact is, what we often call the heart in our day and age goes by other names in the library of Scripture, one of which is the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is writing to a church of followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus, and he writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Pre-Jesus, you were just dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great what? Love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He brought us back from the dead with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And then the iconic line, it is by grace you have been what? Saved. Notice how in one paragraph, Paul ties together the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, quote, you followed the ways of this world, 
the flesh, quote, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And then the devil, quote, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Another name for this creature that also goes by the name of the devil. This is where the early church got the language of the three enemies of the soul, language that was used to name the sense that we all feel, apprentice of Jesus or full-on atheist, this tension that we all feel, this fight outside our body and inside our body itself between good and evil, between heaven and hell. The early apprentices of Jesus were awake to Paul's line later in this same letter that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against ISIS or Russia or Republicans or Democrats or this form of government or that form of taxation. That's all symptomatic level, not root cause. Our fight is against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three of which form a symbiotic axis of evil against our soul and our society. And our working theory for the fall practice has been that the devil's go-to stratagem for ruin in your soul and our society is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. That is three months of teaching in one sentence right there. Like, well, you could have just said that. Well, there you have it. Deceptive ideas, i.e. the devil, that we spent the last seven weeks teaching on, that play to disordered desires, or what we mean by the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, or what we mean by the world. So the point for tonight is, to start off, The devil's lies, the deceptive ideas that play in our mind and in the narrative of our, narrative script of our city are not random. So it's not, I know the internet says Portland is 50 feet over sea level. Actually, it's 60 feet. No. God, help me resist the temptation to believe that. Like, no, who cares? Who freaking cares? That has no bearing on my life at all. Instead, the devil is like a brilliant marketing strategist from Madison Avenue or an algorithmic bot from a troll farm in Russia or deep in China that is specifically targeted to play to what Paul and Jesus and Peter and the writers of the New Testament call our flesh. Now, what exactly does Paul here mean by the flesh? The word in Greek is sarkos. Can you say that? Great job. And very similar to English, a Greek word often has more than one meaning. So think of the English word squash. That word squash can either mean one, a vegetable on the table, or two, a quirky British game similar to tennis but weirder, or three, as a verb to destroy or to demolish someone or something. One word, three very different meanings. In the same way, the Greek word sarkos can mean at least three things in the New Testament. One, sometimes all it means is your body. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, quote, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, has sex with a prostitute, is one with her in body, or soma is the Greek word, for it is said the two will become one flesh, or sarkos. So here, flesh is a synonym for body. Or when it's used for more than one body, it just means humanity. Luke 3, 6, quote, and all people, the Greek word there is sarkos, all of humanity will see God's salvation. 
Or 1 Peter 1, 24, quote, all people, again, sarcos in the Greek, all of humanity are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. So flesh can just mean your body or in the plural, humanity. But then secondly, other times, it means our ethnicity. For example, to the Philippians, Paul writes, quote, for it is we who are the circumcision we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Messiah Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, in context, if you're reading through his letter, what he means here by the flesh is his Jewishness. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a great, great descendant of King Saul. I'm Jewish, all of that. So flesh can just mean your ethnicity, the cultural and national identity that you were born into, even not even how we think of ethnicity, just like you grew up on, in America or on the West Coast or you're from the Pacific Northwest and you have a full array of multicolored beanies and lace-up boots in your closet. Like that's a part of your flesh and his, I'm just saying, you know you do, right? Um, but three, what we talk about when we talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil is not one, our body or humanity, or two, our ethnicity. It's what Paul means right here in Ephesians 2, where he just refers to it by the shorthand, our cravings. In Romans 7, verse 5, he defines the flesh as our, quote, sinful passions. Peter, in his letter, chapter 2, verse 10, defines it as corrupt desire, the lexicographer W.E. Vine defines it as the seat of sin in man. That's an older quote. By man, he means humanity. New Testament scholar Timothy George defines it this way, more in depth. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. So it's the part of your will that is bent in rebellion against God's rule and reign over your life or the kingdom. Flesh is the arena, it's this area of indulgence and self-assertion. I want what I want and I want it now. The locale, the part of you in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as a gift of the creator, but procuring it by one's own power of living from oneself rather than from God. That ending line is very important, remember that. For this reason, the NIV, in the first kind of edition of it, before it was updated a few years ago, translated sarcos as sinful nature. They got in trouble with theologians and kind of untranslated it that way back to flesh. But that's an interpretive mood right there. I would simply define our flesh as the base, animalistic, primal drive or drives in us for self-gratification, especially as it pertains to sex, and food, but with pleasure in general, as well as with survival, power over others, fear, all of that. Now we hear all sorts of smart people, inside and outside the way of Jesus, nod to this part of our human condition. Whether it's Joe Rogan and Elon Musk talking about chimps on a podcast, or if you're a bit more sophisticated, I think of On Walden Pond by Thoreau writing, quote, we are conscious of an animal in us. It is reptile and sensual, and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled. Or of evolutionary psychologists of infamous remain, like Jordan Peterson writing about the mating dynamics of crabs as a model of human behavior, enough said. <laughs> My point is, across the spectrum, we all have this sense of a hierarchy of desires in our mind and our body 
that all healthy people at some point have to self-edit because some of those desires are what Thoreau called higher and lead to, in the language of Jesus, life and life to the full, and other desires are far more base and lead us and others not to life but to death. The latter, those latter desires in our mind and body are what the New Testament writers mean by the flesh. But tragically, this concept of the flesh, which is central to the way of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, church history, has become a bit of a foreign concept in the West, if not a full-on pariah in a city like Portland. Give me a few minutes just to go want to be Mark Sayers on you, all right? Charles Taylor, the eminent sociologist in his seminal work, A Secular Age, which we quote way too often, writes about how the West over the last five centuries moved from a culture of authority to what he calls a culture of authenticity. His point is we no longer live by what an authority tells us to do, be it God, or the Bible, or the New Testament, or church, or tradition, or our parents, or our culture, but rather from what our authentic self, we would call it, wants to do. Now really this fulcrum shift goes back to Freud. I am right now um, attempting to give myself a kind of self-educated graduate degree, like level grasp of psychology. At the moment, I just know enough to get myself in trouble. That's all, I'm just, just enough to be dangerous right now. But apparently, from what I'm told, Freud got pretty much everything wrong, but he got a few things really right, and right or wrong, his ideas have become the air that we breathe in the late modern secular West. Now, prior to Freud, most Westerners thought about desire through the lens of Augustine. Augustine was a fourth century African playboy who became a follower of Jesus and then grew into this towering mind that gave shape to much of Western thought for at least a millennia. His basic take on the problem of the human condition was that it is first and foremost a problem, he said, of what, of what he called disordered loves or disordered desires. His, his basic thesis was that we are made in the image of God and in love by love and human beings were made to love, that we are lovers first and thinkers second. Rational, enlightenment, Western Europeans second, lovers first. Freud, by the way, actually said yes to that. And his, he said, Augustine said, the problem is not that we don't love, it's that one, we love the wrong things, or two, we love the right things but in the wrong order. So it's not bad to say love your career, but when you love it more than your teenager, your son, your daughter, that's a disordered love and it will wreak havoc in your soul and that of the people you parent. Again, it's not bad to love your teenager or your kid, but when you love him or her more than God, that's a disordered love and it will wreak havoc in you and other people in our society. So for the post-Augustine West, human flourishing was essentially about saying yes to the right desires and no to all of the other desires. And you would navigate those desires, which one do I say yes to, which one do I say no to, by mental maps handed down to you by your family, by your church, by the New Testament, by your tradition, like the cumulative wisdom down through 
the ages. That's what liberal arts, those of you that are at George Fox or like any kind of a liberal arts college, it originally was designed as a way to study the great books in particular of the Greek tradition and the Christian tradition in order to become a person of self-mastery, the combination of self-discipline and self-control. Self-discipline, the ability to do what you do not want to do. Self-control, the ability to not do what you want to do. Together, self-mastery because the working assumption for our early democratic leaders was in order to have freedom, you have to have self-mastery to steward said freedom. And so you would study the great writers and minds because the idea was we have millennia of wisdom that has been passed down that is our mental map to navigate our desires by to reach the end goal of human flourishing. Now, Sigmund Freud changed all of that about a century ago. Working off Darwin's theory that human beings are not image bearers, but animals, not the byproduct of love, but of time and of chance, he said the most important desire that you have is your libido, which he defined not only as your desire for sex, but for pleasure in general. And because libido with no restraint would lead all of our society into chaos, our parents and civilization as a whole force us to repress our libido, our desire for pleasure, and for Freud, listen carefully, repression of desire is the basis for all neurosis. Meaning, in every street language, when you or somebody in authority over you says no to an authentic, meaning true to you, desire that you have, that is what makes you unhappy. Now just think about how very different that worldview is from Augustine. Augustine, human beings are image bearers created in love, to love God and each other, but when we disorder our loves and let them run amok, we suffer. Freud, human beings are animals run by instinctual drives, mostly for pleasure, and when we repress said desires or drives, we suffer. And sadly, Freud's ideas have overtaken Augustine in our city and across the West as a whole. What our ancestors called chastity, which is a word that the only time you really ever hear it now is to mock something, we have now called oppression if it's externally imposed and repression if it's internally imposed. What they called self-mastery, we now call sin. In our culture, it is a sin to not follow your feelings. Cornelius Plantinga writes this, in an ego-centered culture, an ego in like the Freudian sense, in a Freud kind of culture, wants become needs, maybe even duties, where people see it as like, you need to, you have a duty to follow your heart, we would say, or your desires. The self replaces the soul, and human life degenerates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel and with how they feel about how they feel. In such a culture, i.e. our city, and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. The ethicist Robert C. Roberts has this observation. We have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. Just as in an earlier time it was thought never fitting to deny God, now it feels never right to deny oneself. Even though that's the first thing Jesus said we do to follow him, deny yourself. But this is just the air that we breathe, am I right? 
It comes out in sayings like, be true to yourself. By the way, you all remember where that line comes from? Junior year in high school, remember? That's a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, to thine own self be true. Anybody like really nerdy, you remember who said that line? 11th, anybody in 11th grade, you're like in it right now. Anybody remember who said that line, to thine own self be true? Okay, that's okay. Um, <laughs> none of you. There's like 800 people in the room. Okay. Um, do people still read Shakespeare, junior year in high school? Am I that old? You still do. Okay, thank you. Hi, Mandy, good to see you. Um, that is a line from Polonius, who, if you know the play, is the fool in the story. That, that's the line from the fool. The fool is the one who says, to thine own self be true, or be true to yourself. Not the wise man, it's from the fool. Yet that has become the rally cry of our generation. Be true to yourself. Or other synonymous kind of catchphrases like the heart wants what it wants or follow your heart or you do you or break the mold or I mean like any number. We hear this PR, this propaganda every single day. And yet the mantra that we are fed of be true to yourself raises a very interesting question. Which self? David Benner, the psychologist, in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, which is a beautiful little read, writes, and this is very psychologist speak, but he writes, what we call I is really a family of many part selves, meaning who you are underneath the hood is a bit of a labyrinth, right? Your authentic self is a bit of a schizophrenic, right? There's a lot of different I don't, mean that in a, in a dis, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just mean there's a lot in you, that war, a lot of different desires, a lot of different yous that are in you. I, for one, on a daily basis, live with this inner tug of war of desires. So let's start with a non-emotionally loaded case study, the grocery store. <laughs> Maybe that is emotionally loaded for you, I don't know. <laughs> You're in line at the grocery store. This is like a once a week thing for me. And I don't know about your grocery store, but at mine, there's a magazine rack on the right and on the left. And normally on the left, there are magazine covers of beautiful, famous celebrities wearing very few clothing and with airbrush Photoshop doing its thing on one side. And then on the other side, there's normally a magazine rack with covers with food on them. So it's chocolate cake or like a holiday dinner party like in the kinfolk table or it's just chocolate or whatever it is. And normally at the top, there's like a snack-like shelf or whatever and there's like chocolate peanut butter cups and like cancer gum and stuff like that <laughs> on the top, right? Now, just to clarify, those two things are mutually exclusive. So in that moment, I want both. I feel this pull of this push and pull of desire. On the one hand, I want to look like Ryan Gosling, who is aging quite well. <laughs> but on the other hand, wow, wow, you look great. You still like okay. But on the other hand, I want those enchiladas for dinner with extra guacamole and chips and salsa. Now, <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, I want both. Both desires are my authentic self. Both desires are authentic to my heart. So what do I do? I take a chocolate peanut butter cup, buy the GQ, and eat while I read, whatever um, your style is. Now that's an easy, non-emotionally loaded example, but there are far more serious desires that war in us. 
I want to stay faithful to my spouse, and I want a divorce. I want to honor women and stand up for full equality, and I also would like to objectify them and watch that show on Netflix and gaze at that person walking down the road for my own sexual titillation. I want to be like Christ, and I just want to do whatever the heck I want. I want to have a life of prayer, and I want to just stay up late, watch TV, and sleep in in the morning last minute before I go to work. Right at a major level and a minor level, at a surface and at a deep, we all live with this war inside our mind and our body of desire. And it's easy to forget that our strongest desires are not necessarily our deepest desires. I remember when my professor in seminary said that. We were in this class, he was teaching on a doctrine called regeneration. Um, You don't need to remember any of this, but it basically means that when you come to Jesus and you're filled with the Spirit, you receive a new heart and your fundamental desire orientation changes from the flesh to the Spirit. And he said it's the lost doctrine after the Reformation and most people you know, outside of the Pentecostal tradition have lost this central doctrine of the New Testament. And he said that line, your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. And I thought, man, that is so true. In the moment of temptation, often really the only desire that I feel is the desire to sin, the desire to lust, to objectify a woman's body, to gossip, to belittle somebody, to tear somebody down to make myself feel better, to buy another pair of shoes I don't need, to whatever the temptation is. But actually, when I step out of that moment of temptation and I'm alone with myself and God and I'm my best self, that's not my deepest desire. Like underneath like the the surface level chaos, my deepest desire, honestly, and this is not because I'm so spiritual, this is because I have the Spirit of God in me, My deepest desire is to honor God with my mind and body and to honor every woman and every man and every coworker and every friend in the same way and to live in a way that is pleasing to my Father in his delight and to live in congruence between his vision of human flourishing and my day-to-day life. That's my deepest desire. Now, it often doesn't feel that way in the moment of temptation. It's, it's way underneath there. And often my deepest desire and yours is sabotaged by our surface level and at times stronger desires. So what this, where we end here is, uh, not end, I have a lot more to say, but <laughs> where we get to is that be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Because I mean, first off, who is your authentic self? There is a part of your authentic self and mine that is very authentic, but it does not lead to freedom and life, but rather to slavery and to death. On that note, turn just a few pages to Galatians chapter five. Just in my Bible, it's two pages to the left. There are a few go-to passages in the New Testament for a biblical theology of the flesh. Galatians five is at the top of the list. Romans eight, we plan to cover next time. And then also two Peter two. Read that, I had to cut it for time tonight. Read that on your own time. And let me just work through this passage with you just over the next five, 10 minutes, and then we'll step back, talk about it, and call it a night. In context, Paul is writing to this 
church or group of churches in the region of Galatia, and he's just finished telling a story about a a well-known slave from the Old Testament named Hagar who was set free but then did not know what to do with her libertine freedom. Then he writes this, chapter five, verse one. It is for freedom that the Messiah has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Now, I like that. That sounds like something a good Portlander would say. We're all for freedom, right? But Paul does not mean what most of us mean by freedom. Skip down to verse 13. Paul deals with two groups in the church, one in slavery to legalism, another in what he calls slavery to liberalism. Then he writes this, chapter five, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, family, you were called to be free by Jesus, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use this freedom that you have from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to indulge, to eat, to feed, to give your appetite to, to sate your primal kind of disordered desires. Freedom, as we all know, is really easy to abuse. Am I right? Philosophers argue that human beings are the only creatures with what they call self-determining freedom, meaning unlike the animals, we don't just run off our primal evolutionary drives. We have those drives, but we also have over the top of them self-determining freedom, the capacity to override any and all desires that do not lead to life but to death. A coyote doesn't have self-determining freedom. A coyote doesn't decide to eat a rabbit or not. Doesn't pray, think, read a book on veganism, ask its friends, consult a mentor. Like, it just, see, rabbit, must run, eat it raw right now in the moment. Right, you're not a coyote. That's why when you go to a restaurant, what do they give you? A menu. They don't just give you a squirming animal, just like, sorry, I just was hungry, evolutionary drive. No, they give you a menu. And you decide, what would I like to eat? How much would I like to eat? What's my budget for date night this month? What would be a nice wine pairing with this hummus, right? You, <laughs> that's because you're, you, have, you have self-determining freedom. We get to decide not only what we eat in the literal sense, but whether or not we eat, so to speak, our coworker at the office through gossip, through a lie, through a a reorg that's really a facade to get ahead in our company, through whatever, we get to decide. We have these primal evolutionary drives for survival, to copulate, to sleep, to get more, to escape our fear, to run, to fight, to flight. We have that, but we also have the capacity to override all of that and say no to it. Now, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. That capacity either goes up or down as we age, depending on how we live. Stay tuned for that. But for tonight, Paul writes, don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Rather, next line, serve one another humbly in what? Love, the major theme of the New Testament. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah, all five books, that's the summary. You're thinking, well, why do we read the whole thing then? Those of you that read through the Bible in a year, just read that line and then start again in June, all right? If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, I remember the first time I read this, this felt like a tangent to me, all right? Paul has this thing to say about freedom and the flesh, 
And then he has this little side thing about love, and it felt like a tangent. It's not. If you know Paul's mind, he is like all J on the Myers-Briggs, right? He's a lawyer, like just point after point after point, very linear thinker. Not like John. I don't understand most of what John says. He's <laughs> all P on the Myers-Briggs. And those of you that love him, love him, all right? Um, that's a whole other teaching series on your Myers-Briggs type and how you interpret the Bible. But <laughs> my point is, this is a bit tricky. This is actually like, there's a linear line of thought here from don't indulge the flesh to love. This is a bit tricky since we often associate the flesh with sexuality, and that's not all bad, but that is because we confuse love and lust. Much, if not most, of what we call love, in particular of the romantic variety, is in fact lust. It is the desire either just to have sex with somebody or at least the desire, if not sexual, to feel emotional pleasure from somebody. Evolutionary psychologists, again, would say this is a pre-programmed mating instinct designed to propagate the species, which is why it does not last. It doesn't matter what a good match you are or we're perfect for each other or whatever. It goes away for every single couple. That honeymoon sense of romantic feeling, it goes away for everybody, it's only a matter of time. And an evolutionary psychologist would say that's because it's designed to get you to impregnate somebody and then to move on to the next mate to continue to propagate the species. Theologians would offer a much less amoral explanation with a very different worldview, a very different interpretation of the data points of science. Either way, secularist or theologian, both agree on this point, the flesh is anti-love. It's all about the self. Remember, love in the teachings of Jesus is not a feeling or a desire. It's definitely not lust. It's definitely not the desire to have sex with somebody. That's not what Jesus means when he's like, love your neighbor as yourself. Not, ex not, sorry. It's not right. It's not even a feeling or a desire. That's why it's commanded all through the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a command. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you define love not only as a desire to have sex with somebody, but if you define it as a feeling, to feel good, warm, fuzzy emotions about somebody, or as a desire to want somebody or something, you can't command that. I don't know about how your body works. I can't command my feelings and my desires. I have influence over them through my habits, more on that next week, but I don't have control over it. So whatever love is in the New Testament, something else. Love in the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament, it's not non-emotional, it's not stoic, but it is first and foremost an act of the will. It's something you can command. It's something that you can go out and do. You can go out and love God or love people. It is an act of the will to put another person's good ahead of your own, even if it comes at great cost or self-sacrifice to yourself but it's not non-emotional, in order to, as Jean Vanier of La Arche once said, quote, reveal to them their beauty and value, to say to them through your attitude, you are beautiful. Your flesh and mine does not want to do that. That's a lot of work, and the flesh is lazy. That takes months or years or decades, and the flesh is all about right here, right now. It just wants to feel good in the moment. Augustine called the flesh love turned in on itself. 
my wife T, who was here last hour, will regularly use flesh as an adjective in our house, fleshy. It's very unbiblical in language, but it's a great idea, right? And, um, and she will use it to describe somebody in our family, never me, regularly children, um, who are in a bad mood and are just selfish. You ever get like this? Just no fun to be around, just like all about the self, all about what I want. You gotta love children because they don't pretend yet. We're all kind of like that, but we learn to fake it, you know? Um, but children have yet to learn to fake it, and so they just misbehave all the time in public with no apology. And, um, and when, when the children, again, never me, are just selfish, and in the moment and not fun to be around and not walking in the love and the joy and the peace and what's good for you ahead of your own, no matter the cost to myself, when that's the antithesis. Tammy will just say, ah, oh, you're being so fleshy right now. <laughs> it's kind of great. <laughs> Point being, the flesh is the antithesis of love, which is what everything is about, all right? That's Paul's next thought. Now. Keep reading, 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. That's Paul's solution to the problem. And you will not gratify or give in to the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. They are literally at odds, oppositional. You have one set of desires that are literally at odds with another set of, that's why the be true to yourself thing's not helpful because you are many people underneath the hood, right? There's this war between the two. They are in conflict with each other so that, quote, you are not to do whatever you want, which is exactly what we are told by our culture to do. Be true to yourself interpretation, do whatever you want and don't let anybody tell you different. That will lead you to happiness. Jesus Paul, the spiritual masters of the New Testament, would say literally the exact opposite. 19, this is where if you follow your flesh, you follow your disorders, desires, this is what it will take you, where it will take you in the end. 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, that is a word we need to bring back. It's like alcohol, too much of it, and everything that comes with that environment. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord. But this, by the way, just reads like the morning news. Jealousy, this reads like the office, gossip. Fits of rage, Twitter. Selfish ambition, education. <laughs> Dissensions, politics. Factions, envy, shopping drunkenness, orgies, Netflix, and the like. This is, a, this is the, like, I'm not, this, I'm trying to be coy. This is the world we live in. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like, if you follow the flesh, what you will reap, if you sow that, what you will reap is not the life and the rule and the reign and the vision of Jesus and his society of people living in his vision of human flourishing. What you will instead inherit is sexual immorality, impurity, anger, factions, tribalism, bitterness, addiction, out of control, no control over your mind and your body, regret, a trail of broken relationships behind you, wounds deepening. That is what you will inherit in your soul and in your society. This basically just reads to me like the morning news. But, 22, look at where if you follow the Spirit, where it will lead you in the end. The fruit of the Spirit is, read this out loud with me, love, 
joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no Torah. You follow the work of the Spirit in you, and where it will lead your soul, where it will lead our society, or at least our community, is to inherit love, joy, a deep sense of well-being, peace, a calm, non-anxious, it's okay, patience, an unhurried just way of being present in the world, gentleness in a time of just anger and rage, kindness in an age of selfishness, self-control in an age where everybody's out of control, faithfulness in a time of commitment phobia and choice anxiety. It's the exact opposite. That first list reads like the morning news. That second is what I pray becomes true of my life and our community. Love, joy, peace, patience. I will literally just begin most mornings lately just, and I will visualize this a little bit in prayer. Love, receive love, give joy, peace, patience. I was that way this morning, by the way. It's all used up by the night, but I was really in a good place this morning. (laughs) My point is, this is where it will take you. So how are we to go forward as apprentices of Jesus? 24, those who belong to a Messiah Jesus, those of us that follow Jesus, we have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What did Jesus say was step one to follow him? Take up your cross and what? Deny yourself. So Jesus' line was not be true to yourself. Nobody does you like you. I'm just here to like aid your empowerment. That thought was not, just to clarify, there's some podcasts that say Jesus said that. It's not there, all right? Jesus' opening line was, oh, you want to apprentice after me? It's open to anybody. Transformation, life to the full. There's your cross. Go die. (laughs) That's what I do. And then on the other side, no sarcasm, is life to the full. But the beginning of life is death. The beginning of apprenticeship to Jesus is a cross. It's death to self, it's crucifixion, it's what my Calvinistic friends called mortification. That is such a good Calvinist word. I'm not a Calvinist, but I'm stealing that word right there. Mortification, it's a 17th century word, verb to mortify, meaning as in mortal, to kill something. So they talk about the mortification of sin. Man, we need to bring that word. Debauchery and mortification. I wanna see both of those words in your Twitter feed by the end of the week, all right? Right? Seriously, there is a time and a place to crucify, to mortify, to kill, to put to death, not yourself in the sense of who God made you to be. This is where often Christians get confused. What we die to is not actually our true self, it's our flesh. And the more that we die to our flesh, which is authentic, it's us, but it's the empty, ugly, base part of us, the more we live into our true self. 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, on one hand, we are to crucify the flesh. How? This is very important. Make sure, I know this is long, make sure you're still tracking. How? You live in the Spirit. Four synonymous verbs in this one passage. Verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. And verse 25, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Four verbs that form one crystal clear word word picture of walking 
in or with in relationship to the Spirit of God. This is key. This is how we crucify, how we mortify, how we die to our flesh. Now, all sorts of other religious traditions, Buddhism, early Judaism, Kabbalah, all sorts of non-religious traditions, evolutionary psychology, have some kind of a category for a flesh and a spirit. Same idea, different language. Like this, this you know, kind of war of desire in you. This is just basic human knowledge, right? Paul's unique contribution, the New Testament's unique contribution, is <clears throat> for Paul, the solution to that problem is not willpower, but is spirit power. So for Paul, it's like, okay, you have this flesh, you have the spirit, this like com- competition and collision of desire. One will lead you to a really nasty place. The other will lead you to the life we crave. So you have to crucify your flesh. How? His solution is not just white knuckle it. Just like say no to drugs or whatever. Or just like flex the willpower muscle. Don't do it. Just come on everybody this week. Go fight your flesh. Go die. Like that's, that's not his end. Sorry, I'm really tired tonight. Um, that, that's not his solution. Now, there's nothing wrong with willpower. Paul's not down on willpower. In fact, from a spiritual formation perspective, one of the things that should happen as you apprentice under Jesus over a lifetime is your willpower muscle. And psychologists argue it's essentially a muscle. You have a finite resource that goes up or down as you age, that your willpower muscle starts to grow and mature and get stronger and stronger. And so what at one point in your life you literally could not say no to like unless if it was like you had a community and accountability partner and a sponsor there and like then all of a sudden you're like yeah no i'm good i'm okay because your willpower is strong that's the end goal most of us aren't there yet that's the end goal the problem with willpower is that it just doesn't work most of the time so as my therapist once said when willpower works it works great (laughs) it just doesn't work most of the time and in particular it doesn't work on your amygdala it doesn't work on any sense of trauma it doesn't work on a father wound on a mother wound it doesn't work on an addiction which is usually rooted in something much deeper in you than a desire for drugs or alcohol it just is clueless it has no doesn't have a chance against a pornography addiction against a mother wound it gets a relational dysfunctional dynamic that you grew up with in your family of origin you aim willpower at that, it's toast. It doesn't stand a chance. So at that point, the solution, again, willpower is great. It just doesn't work on most stuff. But when it works, use it. But the solution to overcome your flesh is not willpower, but spirit power. Meaning we as followers of Jesus, and this is where we are very different, not in a better way. We just have access to something that our secular counterparts do not. We have access to a power that is beyond us that often we don't take advantage of. We have the capacity to open our mind and our body to the power of God, also known as the Spirit of God, who's not only out there, but in here. And for that Spirit to give us the power to overcome our flesh, to fight it and win, and to walk in the Spirit. But the solution is not white knuckle, willpower, say no. Walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. How? How do we do that? Well, through the practices or the spiritual disciplines. These are how we, on a practical level, walk in the Spirit. More on that in just a minute. First, let's just take a step back before we call it a night. Here's really all I want you to see from this passage. The New Testament's definition of freedom and slavery 
are radically at odds with that of our city and our society. Short word on each. First off, freedom. One theologian I read said, no word in the Christian vocabulary has been more misunderstood or abused than this one. In the New Testament, very different from our city, freedom is about freedom from. Not only external oppression, a pharaoh in Exodus or Nero in the Roman Empire in the New, the New Testament actually says very little about that. It's much more interested in freedom from internal oppression, the slavery to desire to sin, when you have to do what is sinful, what is not good for you or for others. According to the New Testament, and in particular according to Jesus, the greatest problem in the world is not the wrong political theory. It's not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or this tax law. That's all symptom-level stuff. The greatest problem is the devil, which most of us don't even believe in and laugh off as pre-modern, but for Jesus is the main problem in the universe, followed by a close second, which is our flesh. As the saying goes, if the devil died today, you would still sin tomorrow. Freedom, in Jesus' mind, and the writers in the New Testament, is about freedom from our slavery above all to sin and to the desire of our flesh. But of course, as we all know, freedom has been radically redefined in the late modern West. No longer is it freedom from, now it is freedom to. It is the ability to do whatever the hell we want. My word choice was deliberate there. To enjoy and pursue and sleep with and buy and sell and say and do whatever we desire with nobody and nothing there to stop us as long as it, quote, doesn't hurt another person, which is a false logical fallacy I don't have time to get into. With this redefinition, the opposite of freedom, which has been redefined as essentially options, is restraint. So the main obstacle in most people's mind to freedom is now any restraints that are put on us by law, by our culture's view of gender or sex or marriage, by the Bible, by theology, by church tradition, by a church, by a community, by our parents, any of it. Now, keep in mind, nobody defined freedom this way up until the Enlightenment or really after not Greek philosophers, not Christian theologians, not Eastern mystics, not Hindu, not Buddhist, nobody. In fact, they pretty much all defined it as the opposite. Freedom is first and foremost about not being run by your flesh or whatever they would call it. Sure, get rid of Pol Pot or Mussolini or Zuma. That's great for sure. Do that work of justice. But even if you get rid of the despot and you live in Portland and you're free and you make six figures a year and you're really cool and whatever, you are still in slavery as long as you are run by your desires. On that note, we have also radically redefined slavery. In the New Testament, slavery, which is a thing and was a, so much there I could say I don't have time for, but slavery is when you have to do something you don't want to do that is not good for you or for society. Whether it is make bricks for Pharaoh or masturbate every night before bed. Some people in the world are enslaved by a tyrant, but most people are enslaved by their own flesh. Peter later writes in just this stunning passage on the flesh, quote, people, he writes about false teachers, they promise people freedom, right? They come in that guise, we're all about freedom, while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For, and this is his line, People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. 
people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. How many of you have ever been mastered by something outside of your control? How many of you have ever done something that deep down you did not want to do? Such as like have seconds on Thanksgiving. (laughs) And then thirds. Every Thanksgiving I'm like one plate, large plate, then I'm done. Three plates later I'm like, oh, that vegan stuffing was the bomb. It was so good, right? One plate of pie, that's it, just some pumpkin pie. Four plates later, I'm like, I didn't want to offend Aunt Jojo. Like, I had to try her pie, and I had to try that pie, and I had to try that pie with chocolate and ice cream, right? Um, Or how many of you said, like, I need to go to bed at 10 p.m. sharp to be up early for work, and then 1 p.m., you're like, I'm halfway through this season of Netflix, whatever, you know? Or on a more serious note, Sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend when you said, not me, I follow Jesus. Or cheat on your spouse when you said, never. Or whatever, or lie, or cheat, or whatever it is. Major again, or minor as we define it. For most of us, especially, and this is a good thing in the democratic West, this is the main problem in our life. This is our main area of bondage. Gerald May, a psychologist I love who does work on the intersection between psychology and spirituality, writes this, in particular Jesus' spirituality, writes this. Regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath it's always robbing us of our freedom. So externally it might look like, let's go out, let's party, I do whatever, who cares what my parents think, who cares what the Bible says, like I'm free, single, not sorry, like whatever the thing is, you know? But underneath, it's always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. In a spiritual sense, the object of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not, even, often especially, when we are struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, and happy. But in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble. It's also what the writers of the New Testament call our flesh and slavery to it. But slavery, of course, as we all know, has also been radically redefined to what? To any form of external authority. Anything outside of yourself that restrains or even puts a limit on your desires. That external authority could be a parent or a boss or a judge or a law or a moral or social norm or a gender role or the Bible or God himself. Anything that keeps you from doing what you want to do. Now again, This goes without saying, and don't mishear me, that much external authority is oppressive and does keep people in legitimate slavery. We think of North Korea or ISIS or some of what's happening in the Middle East right now or the digital tyranny of China or here in the US, systemic racism in our criminal justice system, stifling 1950s gender roles, helicopter parenting, whatever your example is. But just because there's the abuse of authority does not mean that authority is in of itself bad. Most external authority is there to keep our flesh in check. Theologically, this is actually one of the main, as far as I can tell, one of the main jobs of government as well as of parents. 
to restrain the flesh and people who can't or won't self-restrain, who do not yet have self-mastery. For those of us who follow Jesus, the right kind of authority, in particular that of Jesus and his way as it comes to us through the New Testament and our community and our tradition, is actually a training ground that we opt in of our own free will. We place ourselves in his kingdom. Another way to say that is under his authority. Jesus is Lord means I come under the authority. Not just I agree with Jesus. Obedience isn't when you agree. It's when you do what he says whether you agree or not. A lot of us think we obey Jesus. We just agree with Jesus and do what he says where we agree. And where we disagree, we do our own thing. That's not obedience. That's not living in the kingdom. That's not living under his authority. For followers of Jesus of our own free will, we place ourselves under his authority and we're actually in a training ground to reign in our flesh and become the kind of people who eventually have the capacity to handle freedom with grace. Because freedom without self-mastery is a disaster waiting to happen. This is why the Founding Fathers never designed our country as a democracy, but as a republic. And there's all sorts of controversy about that now. Democracy has been tried twice in human history. It did not work either time. It was followed by the mob that was run by the flesh that was followed by the despot. Point being, just to scare you, by the way, move to Canada while you can, all right? <laughs> Point being, this is why we don't give guns to 10-year-olds or alcohol to teenagers or driver's license to people with too many DUIs. Why we don't let anybody become a police officer or whatever the example is. Because freedom without self-restraint, without mastery, is dangerous. Not because freedom's bad, because freedom has to grow in tandem with Christ-like character. All that to say, much of what our city calls freedom is what Jesus and Paul and the teachers of the way call slavery and vice versa. Again, best read on this is why liberalism failed. Patrick Deenan out there for sale. It started with the Enlightenment, the Founding Fathers, the Constitution, which he calls, quote, an attempt to make a whole new kind of human based on a new definition of freedom. But follower of Jesus or not, whether you're here and you just think this is crazy, all healthy human beings recognize a hierarchy of desires and that to live healthy, you have to self-edit those desires. For us as apprentices of Jesus, we take our mental maps, not from the US Constitution, not from the slogans of a secular city, not from this podcast from whoever, but from Jesus, our rabbi, and more, our Lord. We reject the redefinition of freedom and slavery, and we, re and we recognize that a key part of our apprenticeship to Jesus is fighting our flesh and through the practices of Jesus or these spiritual disciplines, cultivating the soil of our heart into fertile ground for the spirit to grow his fruit of love and joy and peace and the rest to set us free. Which is why our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org slash fighting. Um, for this practice, we've been working off the theory that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Put another way, the practices of Jesus are how we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. The first two, scripture reading and scripture memorization, which were hopefully helpful to you and your community, were specifically aimed at the devil to combat his deceptive ideas. Next up, is confession of sin, that's on the docket for the week ahead, and fasting the week after, which are specifically aimed at our flesh to combat our disordered desires. And confession is just first up because sometimes the place you begin is just with honesty. You start where you are. 
Confession is a beautiful spiritual discipline that the Protestant church lost in the Reformation due to the abuse of it by the Catholic church. And often what we think of as confession is I go to church and during a song I say sorry to God in my mind. And again, that's fine. But that does not have anywhere near the evocative power of when you show up at a dingy church basement at 6.30 in the morning with bad coffee and a styrofoam cup and you say, hi, my name's Sarah and I'm an alcoholic. You say that in community and there is a freedom power in that moment because that's the spiritual discipline of confession. So we want to curate that kind of a space in our communities, even though this, you don't need the styrofoam cup, that's bad for the environment, but <laughs> we want to curate that kind of a space in our communities of love where we can come out and say, man, this is my disordered desire, this is my sin, this is a habit of mind or body or just something I want that I, I don't want to want this in a safe space of a community that one has a crazy high moral and spiritual bar but two is brutally honest about where we're actually at and is a safe place to start where you're at that's our agenda to create that safe place to open up to begin there um to end let's just stand together for prayer i know that was really long and thank you for your patience and really all i wanted to do tonight was just lay out a biblical theology to frame this concept because it's so alien to our city. But now we begin to fight this in us, to crucify our flesh, to walk in the Spirit. Even tonight, church is a spiritual discipline. Singing, prayer, confession, repentance, listening to God's voice, all the stuff right now, community, conversation, all of this, it's how we fight. It's how we open up our mind and our body to the Spirit. So we just pray. Would you just pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come. If you want, would you just put your arms up over your head just as a way of praying with your body? God, we need you to set us free. Holy Spirit, come. Set us free from our flesh. Reorder our heart to want what you want. Reorder our mind to think the way that you think, to value good and evil the way that you value good and evil, not as is set by our society that is a mess right now, but rather, God, to have your mind and from that to have your heart, your fulcrum point of desire, like birth in us. May our desire for love for you and neighbor and the rightly ordered loves, may it increase, and all the other loves, the wrongly ordered ones, may it decrease. Holy Spirit, just set us free tonight, I pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.